This is Steve Smith at the California Western School of Law, and I call the Law Review to order. Today on Law Review, we are going to talk about the Innocence Project, the California Innocence Project, the project that seeks to free those prisoners who are actually innocent. It's a horrible thing when somebody is wrongfully convicted, and the Innocence Project is the last chance to correct some of those mistakes. Justin Brooks is the director of the California Innocence Project at the California Western School of Law. Also joining us is Alex McDonald, a clinical student at the Innocence Project at California Western. Thank you for joining us on Law Review. So Justin, what's the most dramatic exoneration that the California Innocence Project has had? Um, for me, it's Timothy Atkins. What, what made it dramatic? Well, Tim went to prison when he was 17, and uh, the day we took him home, he was 40. You know, he'd spent 23 years in prison for a murder he didn't commit. And everything about the case was shocking. He was, he was convicted on really no evidence at all. Uh, the testimony of a crack-addicted prostitute is what put him in prison. And 23 years later, miraculously, we got her back into court in front of the original trial judge who was still on the bench. And he finally got to have his case heard in the right way. And just the idea of driving home a 40-year-old guy who'd you know, been in prison for 23 years and hadn't been in his neighborhood since he was a teenager was just really impactful. That is, I mean, that is dramatic. And it was essentially someone recanting her testimony that had been the basis for the conviction? Yeah, he was convicted just on this woman's testimony and not even her testimony because they couldn't present her at trial. They actually allowed her preliminary hearing testimony to be read to the jury. So she was never even really cross-examined. And it was one of those situations where the police wanted a name or she wasn't getting out of the police station. She wanted to go get high and she gave up the name of Tim Atkins, and he ends up serving 23 years in prison for that. Wow, so how many exonerations has this Innocence Project had? We've had a dozen exonerations over basically the last dozen years, so we've been averaging about one a year. And to do that, we look through more than a thousand cases a year. So really, the, the bulk of our work is looking for strong cases of factual innocence. And we have volunteers and law students and lawyers who are every day sifting through cases looking for that needle in the haystack. And we'll come back in a, in a, in a little bit to some of the process by which you find the, the needle uh, in the haystack and, and what the rest of the haystack looks like. But first I want to ask, ask Alex, you're a student in the Innocence Project. Uh, what's the most memorable thing to you from your, from your work in, in the project? I've had quite a few memorable moments already and I'm only halfway through. Um, a lot of them have been with my colleagues. I've gotten close with a lot of the students who are also in the project because they're the only people that can really understand what um, what you what you go through in the process. So we've had laughter, tears, and all that, um, and and also meeting the clients. I've been to um, quite a few prisons in California, and so um, I've developed relationships with people who have been in prison since they were teenagers. Um, so it's it's a a shock to the system to be thrown into a situation like that, but I've become very close with a lot very of Very different than the rest of law school. Extremely different, yeah. How many other students are with you in the Innocence Project? Uh, there's 11 other students in my year. And and we'll come back to later that there, there are other students, well, in fact, how many other students are there working? In addition to the students who are taking it, uh, as Alex is for credit, 
how many students are working in? We typically have 20 to 30 students um, working in the project at any time. Um, on the fall semester, we have uh, I teach a wrongful conviction class, and all the students in that class also get to work at least on one case. But in most of the cases, is what would be called pro bono work. They're doing it um, without credit and are doing it uh, for the purpose of helping other people. I mean, and that's what makes the model so remarkable is, you know, the most expensive thing in a, in a legal case is usually the lawyers. And our labor is by and large free. So our real expenses are investigating cases and not actually doing the legal work. Well, let's step back a minute and talk about what is it, an innocence project. You hear it all the time. You hear it in different parts of the country. Is there a single innocence project? How many, how my, how many are there? There are now over 70 innocence projects in the United States. Um, so yours is the California Innocence Project that deals with Southern California, but there can be innocence projects in any number of other cities. Yeah, and when we started the project here in San Diego 13 years ago, there were five projects. And the, the five people running them all got together, and we decided to start creating a network and developing projects. And now we've developed them in all the states. Uh, there's about six in England. There's three in Australia. We have a project in New Zealand and Canada. And you're working all on a project in Chile. Yeah, and particularly California Western has been very involved in Latin American work. And through, through that work, we started developing innocence projects in Latin America. And we've got one started in Chile, one in Argentina. Um, this semester, we're starting a project in Tijuana at UABC Law School. And fundamentally, what is an innocence project? You know, we have this simple goal, which is looking for innocent people in prison and getting them out. And that's what all innocence projects do. Now, along the way, we do different things like work on law reform. Um, we work on different types of innocence cases. Some projects only do DNA cases. We do all types of cases here at our project. But our, our fundamental mission that binds us all together is it's free representation for wrongfully convicted people. And, and this, this is, we'll, we'll again talk a little bit about some of the procedural things in a, in, a, in a minute, but this is not a kind of a general appeal, criminal appeal. This is a very special kind of proceeding, which is once a conviction is completely final, those are the only cases you're looking at it, I take it. Absolutely. We are the last resort. Um, and that's, that's very sobering for our law students. You know, our students are second-year law students, and we hand them a case and basically tell them, this is the end of the line for this person. Um, if we close this case, they will very likely die in prison. Um, and so it's a very serious yeah. thing. They've, they've lost their trials. They've lost their appeals. They don't have attorneys working for them. They have no more resources left. And so we do a very particular legal process, which is the habeas process, which under every state constitution and under the federal constitution, there's a right to petition the courts if you're in prison and you're innocent. So this is a very particular kind of uh, difficult legal proceeding. Well, the Innocence Project also has an important educational component. Alex, as you were talking about uh, a, little, a little bit ago, what what kind of education you're receiving that you didn't receive in the in the classroom or in your other courses? Um, well, it's a very real world experience. You are out in um, neighborhoods interviewing witnesses. Um, you get thrown into situations where you're not necessarily 100% comfortable, but it's um, you know for your clients and it's um, a 
lot of other things we do is um, legal drafting. I know my writing abilities have improved. Um, the attorneys with our office are very, uh, they expect perfection because these are people's lives and we're, um, that's the work we do. So um, yeah, I mean, it's, you can't, you can't, the tests I've taken haven't taught me, haven't taught me what I've learned in the past three months in the neighborhoods and the prisons. Um, so it's the ability to build on that foundation that you've gotten in the other class and put it to actual practice. Oh yeah, it's it's so, it's practical. And it. Um, I've learned also um, from a broader perspective as well um, about the criminal justice system. Um, I've learned, you know, criminal theory in my classes, but I've seen the flaws of the criminal justice system on um, a broader level, and it's um, changed the, the course of my career path. I want to help um, fix some of those things that I see happening every day with our clients. Now, Justin, I remember you saying at one point, one of your goals was for people to really believe if criminal defense attorneys aren't pretty good, people get treated very badly in the criminal justice system. Oh, sure. I mean, an ineffective assistance to counsel is one of the leading causes of people being wrongfully convicted. Um, but, you know, the educational mission is really what inspired me in doing this project. I, uh, 17 years ago, I was working on a death penalty case in Chicago, and I was teaching law school in Michigan, and this woman had been sentenced to death on a plea bargain. And I went into my class and said, you know, I've, I've heard about this woman who's been sentenced to death on a plea bargain. Who wants to help me out? And a bunch of law students raised their hands. And we spent several years together investigating her case and bringing it back to court and getting her death sentence reversed. A plea bargain death sentence? Yeah, she was sentenced to death what, on a plea bargain. What was the other part of the bargain? I mean, what did the prosecution Exactly. Look? The bargain part was missing in it. But working on that case, I realized what I wanted to do with my life was educate law students, but do it with real cases so I could fulfill my need to work on the cases, but also, you know, be part of education. And, and those are the two things I love the most are practicing law and teaching law students. So I have the perfect job in terms of that. And, you know, Alex and I just came from class to come here. And today was an example. We were you know, talking about gangs in LA, and we we were going through a map and going one by one through the neighborhoods, showing where the Crip territory is, where the Blood territory is, where the MS-13 are, and for the students to understand the different conflicts and rivalries that go on in those gangs, because it's important in our cases to understand sometimes when we get these declarations of people recanting testimony, what might be the motive the gang-based motive. But that's the kind of thing I don't think you learn in right. traditional law school classes, right. you know, what are the, the rivalries and the Crips and Bloods in well, South but, Central but the LA. Broader, the broader talent is is learning how to do fact investigation and thinking what facts might be relevant to a complicated case. Exactly, and when they become lawyers to understand this stuff when it comes in, and the only way to really understand it is to do that kind of street work, get a sense of the work at the ground level, and then you know they go in to be practicing lawyers, and they're way ahead of the curve of their their colleagues. And, and like Justin was saying about the, we were learning about the gang neighborhoods in South Central LA, and I'm actually going there tomorrow on an investigation. So it's, I don't think you can get more practical than that, learning about it and then going and knocking on those doors. But I feel more comfortable now, at least knowing what I'm getting into. And um, well, it's obviously great, a great experience. I would think there would be a lot of demand uh, for this class. Did you just sign up for it and in you came? Uh, no, it was that easy. It was not. <laughs> what did you have to go through to, to get into the class? 
Um, well, we submitted an application, um, you know, with a resume and um, and transcripts and all that. And then um, they asked us a little bit about why we want to be in the project and our background. Um, then there is the infamous question number 15. Mm -hmm. 15. Um, and they give you um, an assignment that you have to complete. Um, and it ranges. I've heard a lot of different questions. Um, some of mine included getting DNA samples from the attorneys in the office without them knowing it. Um, and they're very aware that people are trying to get their DNA. So um, I had to get creative. Um, I was outside of my supervisor's house, her apartment building, for quite a while. I I know some of her neighbors now. Um. <laughs> so it's just to prove that you can do fact investigation? And I think also to um, see how creative you can be and maybe, you know, it's we do it. We did it during um, the first year, which is really stressful. So I think they also want to see people that are dedicated and are going to keep up with their studies and go that extra mile to get onto the project. Yeah, we're looking for really tenacious law students. And I'll give you a simple example. There's, and I know you know it, there's a restaurant down in Ocean Beach called Hodads. Oh, yes. And <laughs> the walls are covered in license plates. And one of the questions we'll ask regularly is, how many license plates are there at Hodads? And <sighs> a few years ago, this student gave me the answer, about 1,000. So I said, well, how'd you find that answer out? And he said, I called there, and that's what they told me. And I said, well, you... <laughs> yeah, and you believed him. <laughs> well, yeah, I said, well, you're, you're not going to get into the clinic, but I want to tell you why. That was readily ascertainable information, and you were comfortable giving me an inexact answer when you could have got an exact answer by getting in your car and driving down there and counting those license plates. And that's not the kind of inexact work that I need. We need the student who'll drive 200 miles to the evidence room and make sure the evidence was destroyed or is still there. And it's a great screening device because we're looking for bright law students, but bright law students is not going to get an exoneration. It's, it takes the work, the labor intensiveness, the particularity of detail. And even the way the students present the material back to us is interesting because if we said, give me a writing sample, it's going to be perfect. But I say, you know, answer this question. And sometimes just the presentation of the answer indicates that there's going to be sloppy work. Plus, if they, if he or she had gone to Hoda Ads, they could have had a great malt while completing chocolate malt while <laughs> completing the assignment. I, I have, I had a few years ago. The security guards called me and said, "There's a student hanging around your car. Did you give somebody permission?" They were trying to get the VIN number, I think, yeah. on my car as part of this project. All I can say to that is, I'm the number one victim of most. Oh, of Every oh, year, oh. there's at least ten students trying to find out how many light switches there are in my home or my children. <laughs> go to school. I've had my kids followed to school several times. Uh, I so, stalked your children too. Uh, yeah. <laughs> so I'm usually the victim of most of these investigations. Well, so once you're in the project, uh, what has your experience been? What have you worked on? What kind of work? You mentioned that you were pre preparing to do gang supervision or uh, surveillance, but what, what have you been doing? Um, it's a range of things. I've um, interviewed a lot of clients in prisons. Um, and that's to get information from them and to develop a relationship. They need to trust us as well to be able to give us information. A lot of the times they're putting themselves on the line um, with the information they give us. Um, I've interviewed witnesses um, at a Baskin Robbins in LA, everywhere. Um, and right now um, I'm starting to do a lot more legal drafting as some of my cases have progressed. Um, so that's really interesting to you. And um, 
and I, I also have done, like, when I speak with a lot of the attorneys, we discuss legal theory that is a little bit beyond a lot of the classes that I'm in. Um, so that's interesting because we have, I mean, one of our attorneys went to the California Supreme Court and argued for new case law. So there's no right answer. And that's, I'm, I feel like I'm uh, shaping the law as well with what I'm doing with our clients. Yeah. And that's, you know, our law students, California Western School of Law students have been dominating the public defender interviews and, and getting jobs at an incredibly high level. And I think it's these things. You know, our students come in there, they've been to prisons all over the state, they've done interviews with inmates, they've been struggling with statutory issues. So they can talk the talk when they walk into a job interview. It's not, I wonder what a public defender does. They've been doing the work, and it really gives them a huge leg up into, into their careers. We've talked in some other of the podcasts about the the importance of someone who's graduated from law school bringing something special to a, a job or to interviews for a job. And this is what you're saying is it's the, the, it's the special education, special training that, exactly. that this, the graduates would bring. Are most of the students in the class interested in going into criminal law? Uh, you know, some students come through it and decide this is the last thing they ever want to do again. <laughs> I mean, there's oh, right. definitely some the of them. The intensity and, and, yeah. and frustrations, I guess. They're working, you know, we're working mostly on homicide cases. It's very intense, um, and they think this isn't what I want to do with my life. With other students, it confirms this is absolutely what they want to do with the rest of their life. Uh, we've had a number of prosecutors, excellent prosecutors, come through our office. In fact, that's a kind of little secret that people don't know is, you know, we love having prosecutors. Well, I would think, for one thing, a criminal justice system can only be as good as its weakest link. So if the prosecutors are, are bad, better, the, the whole system should work. Better. And they have all the power. So there's nothing I would like better. Oh, in the, in the, in the system, the prosecutors have Exactly. Because so, they are making decisions about whether to prosecute, whether to drop charges and, and the like. Exactly. So when I'm training a criminal defense attorney, which you know we do every day, it's preaching to the choir somewhat, and they're already kind of right. philosophically aligned. But give me a young prosecutor and let them see the face of an innocent person. So when they're going out and prosecuting, and that person's in their mind, and they're thinking, maybe this person is innocent is in front of me. And, and in our system, prosecutors have a special obligation not to win cases, but to do justice. So right. with that in the back of their mind, can only let them do their job better right. as, as we think of it and conceptualize it at least. And we really try to model that to our law students as well. Like we, we have an amazing relationship with the San Diego County District Attorney's Office. I was going to ask about the prosecutors. I mean, you could imagine two responses. One is our, our, if there's an innocent person in, in, in prison, we want them out because that's a wrongful conviction. We it sends chills up our spine. And number two, it means there's a guilty person more likely than not a guilty person still running around. So that's one. But you could also see, look, we've this case is already done. We don't need to reopen. What do you, which, which do you find? Right. I mean, in some of our cases, that's exactly right. The, the that latter. The, the only the, way we can actually prove innocence is by solving the crime. And we've done that a number of times. Um, that's why... It, it's interesting. Over 13 years, there's been so there's been almost no negative publicity or people unhappy with our work because it's hard to argue with innocence. And when we go to prosecutors, you're absolutely right. They have a duty to pursue justice. And we come in and say, we're just trying to find out the truth here. Um, work with us together. And, you know, this past summer, the Brian Banks case was a perfect example of that where the L.A district attorney actually conceded our writ 
We filed the writ of habeas corpus with the evidence that he was innocent, and they said, you're right, and went into court and joined us. So we never had to have a hearing, and the case is dismissed. Um, Bonnie Dumanis in San Diego did the same thing with the Ken Marsh case. And so it's it's been a process over the past 13 years building those bridges. Mm-hmm. And being at a law school also is a tremendous opportunity. In, in what way? Because we're not in there every day fighting every case against them. You know, we're kind of a third party from a law school. They know we look through thousands of cases right. and only pull a few out. Right. So it's not the same old story from us. You know, when you're a public defender, you defend every case in front of you, yeah. innocent or guilty. But the DAs in the state are starting to recognize that when we come to them with a case, you know, we've done our due diligence on it, and this is something they should take seriously. Now, You've I'm, mentioned the th- I'm sorry. I'm going to say, now that's not true across the board that we've been successful to every office. I, you know, there is red California and blue California, <laughs> and red California has been a little more difficult nut to crack. Uh, you, you've mentioned a couple of times thousands of cases, sifting through thousands of cases. Where do these cases come from? Do you read the papers and see that just doesn't look right to me uh, in the newspapers? Do you hear word of mouth? How do you, how do you get the cases? Well, you know, back in 1999 when, when we started the project, I naively thought, you know, where are these cases going to come from? And then the LA Times wrote an article saying, you know, welcome to the California Innocence Project, and we have been flooded with mail ever since. Mostly from prisoners themselves or their family members, I assume? Yeah, mostly prisoners themselves. Um, Family members are emailing us constantly. Um, California state prisoners don't have access to email, or (laughs) that would change our entire intake process. But yeah, we get boxes of mail every day, and then we sift through them. If they're claiming they're innocent, we send them out an extensive questionnaire um, it comes back, the law students read through it, and we find out things like who is their trial lawyer, who is their appellate lawyer, as much facts as we can about the case, and we start an investigation from there. So Alex, have you sifted through these? I've sifted through some of the mail. Um, I, I mostly, the clinical students get the cases after we've screened them. Um, I have done some work with the intake process, and it's, it is time consuming, so... Yeah. I, so what are you looking for in deciding whether this is a case with some potential? Um, well, in my investigations with the cases that have already been screened, um, we're looking for exculpatory evidence, um, anything new. I mean, we learned about standards um, in the wrongful conviction class where you have to either find um, that false evidence was presented at trial or find new evidence that points unerringly to their ev- uh, their innocence. Um, so that's what generally we're looking for. Um, it, it, I mean, it's, it's anything. Any, any witness who will give you a clue, it often leads to other things. The inmates are also really valuable in, in guiding my investigations when I get stuck. It's just like any crime show or film. <laughs> I mean, we're looking for evidence of innocence. Sometimes it's but physical evidence. But how can you tell that from the paper? The papers that the person has sent you? That's a good question. You often can't. What we can tell is, is there potential? So it's potential not just that the person is really innocent. I mean, you may believe that, but that's not going to cut it. I mean, you then have to be able to prove the person is innocent. No, as Alex said, you know, the standards are extremely high. We've got to look for, you know, evidence that completely undermines the prosecution's case and points unerringly to innocence. So they're very high legal standards. So a lot of cases just on the surface, we know we're not going to be able to develop that kind of evidence. And those cases get closed. 
in other cases with, with that's the brainstorming process and that's really the the amazing educational process is what we do in the classroom is we're deconstructing these cases we're taking all the facts in and kind of pulling it apart and then thinking about how could we reconstruct this case in such a way that we'd be successful and in the majority of cases the answer is we can't um, that there's no evidence that's going to be able to meet that standard and who decides whether to to, to take a case or not well, there's a, a screening process. Kim Hernandez has been the gatekeeper for a long time in the intake part. Um, if it makes it past her, it, it can go into the clinic pile. Then the clinic students get them. The students rotate in doing presentations to the group. So a typical class for us is all the students sitting in the room and one student in front of the room with a PowerPoint presentation showing us all the crime scene evidence, talking about all the potential witnesses, and we're all brainstorming you know, an investigation plan. And we'll come up with, okay, try this, try this, try this. And if we find good evidence, the case moves on in a positive and, way. And that's really that what you've just described is really the beginning of a process that can go on literally for years, I suppose. Years. Yeah. yeah, we've got a couple of cases we had our first year. Uh, the William Richards case we've been litigating for 12 years, which we just argued in the California Supreme Court and, and lost four to three. Um, so we're going to continue fighting that case. We actually got his conviction reversed in San Bernardino, and then they appealed the reversal. But there the prosecutor obviously was not what you talked about before, is being presented with evidence. And it, the prosecuting attorneys may very well have thought, well, actually, we don't see the evidence the same way. Mm -hmm. Yeah, and, and, it, and the psychology of it is, is complicated because a lot of times when we roll into town and you know, we start undoing a case that some prosecutor vested three or four years of their life in, that's very difficult for anyone to admit they were wrong right. or they were part of a wrongful you know, conviction. And so for a lot of prosecutors, that's a hard pill to swallow. I mean, lawyers aren't known for having small egos, and a lot of it... <laughs> A lot of it can be just an ego thing. Because I actually used to think it was more financial, that they were concerned about oh, opening uh -huh. themselves up to lawsuits. But over the years, I've come to believe it has nothing to do with that. It's this resistance because you have to admit, you know, maybe I put a person in prison who was innocent. And the system, even if it wasn't the same person, the same officer, the system was screwed up. So right. in that case. Right, but the smaller the town, I've noticed, the more connection, the more personal it is. You know, when you're in L.A., yeah. so many hands have touched a case that yeah. you, you never see the original prosecutor. But you show up in these small towns, you're up against the person who put that person behind bars. Today on Law Review, we are looking at the California Innocence Project, freeing those wrongfully convicted. Our guests are Professor Justin Brooks, and Alex McDonald, a student at California Western. So how are exoneration claims different than, than just an ordinary appeal? You've mentioned a couple of times, this is not just another appeal, but it's right. a whole different proceeding. It's after all the appeals are done, someone's in prison, and then along comes the uh, Innocence Project. So what, what, what's that process, process if it's not an appeal? Right, every criminal defendant has a right to go to trial and then has a right to one initial appeal and to have an attorney represent them on it. Um, you know, most of those cases they lose on appeal. Sometimes they try to get review in the sup state Supreme Court and the cases end there. 
The cases we have are after that process is all done, sometimes it's 10, 15, 20 years later. And in California, you always have the right to get your case reopened if there's new evidence of innocence. And that's what we use, what's called the habeas process. And we file what's called a habeas petition, or it's actually a petition for writ of habeas corpus. Mm -hmm. The way it works is, most cases, they're just summarily denied. And, and the reason, I guess, is in part is the law has to have some finality. I mean, the, the, the idea is all the court processes were completed, this case is closed, and it's, there's a reluctance to reopen them, I guess. That's right. In fact, the U.S. Supreme Court has said, a few justices have said, that innocence is not in the Constitution. So you don't have a constitutional right to be released from prison just because you're innocent. The irony of that is, I think 99% of Americans would say, the only reason you should be yeah, released from yeah. prison is you're innocent, <laughs> and we don't care if your search and seizure rights were violated. But and that's really care. not the position of the United States Supreme Court. There are a couple of justices, but that's really not the Supreme Court. Not across the board, but yeah. you still do need a constitutional hook when you're raising these claims, and you have to frame them in a constitutional way. So in most of our cases, you know, for example, if it's an ineffective assistance of counsel case where we say our client's constitutional right to a, a good lawyer was violated, and because of that, that lawyer didn't find the evidence of innocence that we've now found, and it's a way of reopening the case. And, but the way the process works is, you know, inmates across the country file these petitions every day for habeas corpus. And I think a lot of people think these things are granted. 90-some percent, close to 99%, are just denied. Um, they're poorly written. The inmates don't have lawyers working on them. They've kind of written them up themselves in the prison, and they just get denied. With our cases, we put together a substantial you know, pile of evidence to really establish innocence. And if the judge likes it, he'll go back to the prosecutor and say, tell them to respond to it. And then if the judge wants to hear more, they order a hearing. That hearing works just like a trial. We come in, we put witnesses on, we put evidence on, the judge hears the case. But this is a judge hearing the case, not a jury, because this is not a, a retrial in a technical sense. Exactly. It's the habeas corpus petition. Exactly. It's, it's not a trial in the sense that we're going to have a jury. We have a judge considering all the evidence, and at the end of that, the judge thinks we've met our very high burden which, you know, the, the, the burden for new evidence and false evidence, extremely high, the judge will grant the writ, meaning they'll order that our client be released from prison. These are extraordinarily rare events, which is why they, they all become major news stories. So what happens next? Is the person just released? Is there a new trial? Well, that's where the finessing and that's where a lot of the legal education really comes in for our students. You know, we're still at risk that they'll reprosecute. Technically, they could be retried. Yeah. And, in most cases. And they almost always threaten to. Oh, is that right? They almost never do, but they almost always threaten why, to. Why? Why? You know, uh, they'll always say, we got to go back and look at this. We got to review it. It depends what county you're in, because sometimes we're up against appellate lawyers, and sometimes we're up against trial lawyers. Uh -huh. And they approach these cases very differently. So the appellate lawyers have to go back with the trial lawyers and decide whether they want to go after the client again. Um, they have 60 days to come back to court and say they're re-prosecuting. They also could appeal the decision. Now that 
was very rare in our experience until the last couple so the, of years. So the judge's decision granting the writ of habeas corpus saying that's right, that at a minimum there should be a new trial or the person released, that can be appealed to a higher court. Right. And, that, and that's not, what happens in the case you were you're just mentioning a minute ago. Yeah. In the William Richards case in San Bernardino, we litigated it for years in front of a former prosecutor, tough on crime judge. And at the end of the hearing, he said, he's innocent. He should be released. And the prosecution said, we're appealing it. Um, William is actually for five years been sitting in the San Bernardino jail because we got his conviction reversed so the Department of Corrections wouldn't take him back. And pending all these appeals that have gone on, he's just been sitting in the jail in legal limbo. Um, On top of that, he's, he's developed cancer. And so we've been litigating to get him cancer treatment in the county jail. This is again, going back to the law students, the kind of education you really, it's very difficult to achieve in a classroom because they really see how complex these things are. And it's not just about the law, it's about the politics and the personalities. You know, I, I talk to my students about when they go to these small desert towns to really think about how they're perceived. You know, we're actually seen as like big city lawyers coming from San Diego. You know, I say, don't say things like, is there a decent place to get lunch around here? (laughs) (laughs) Because these clerks can make our life a living hell uh, down the road. So there's a lot of that training of being a lawyer that you have to be in these situations to understand. Alex, what have been some of the surprises for you? I mean, that would be surprising advice, Mm -hmm. I suppose. Uh, But advice to... (laughs) To be courteous to people is probably something your grandparents told you. Oh, yeah. I mean, and well, and sensitive to the neighborhood you're in. You don't know what people are like in, you know, different parts of California. But um, one of, I think, the biggest surprises I had was um, just the amount. I I pictured myself going in and exonerating someone in my first month. (laughs) And so I found out that um, the big surprise to me was how difficult and how frustratingly difficult this whole process is. Um, I, I've learned to, um, appreciate small victories, very small victories. Oh. We celebrate those in our office. Um, so that was a, that has been the biggest challenge and surprise for me is learning to like the small stuff in our office. <laughs> Great. Well, will, will the, do you think do you, that the change in the California law, uh, concerning three strikes, will, will that have a, a major impact on what the Innocence Project does? Well, we've had cases for years, these very sad three strikes cases that come in our office, and they usually sit in the corner of my desk because I can't stand closing them. And there are those cases. But, but where, there's, a, by the same token, you don't see any way of doing anything for them. Because they're not innocence cases. Yeah. You know, they're people who've done petty crimes. Um, so we had a couple of those cases this year that we negotiated with the district attorney to get our clients released. Um, under California's new three strikes law. You know, one of our clients had been in prison for 17 years for stealing a $150 leaf blower. Um, That was the third strike. Yeah. And, you know, people, it's great the voters reformed that law because I think most people, the polling showed, thought the law already was that you had to do three serious or violent crimes to get three strikes. And most people don't realize that it's serious or violent and that drug crimes can get you three strikes. Because and get they're you considered prison. serious, at least yeah. if they're trafficking. Kind right. Of things. And I think it's one of those political things that people were thinking, we want to get violent offenders off the streets, yeah. which I think everyone can agree with. Right. But a lot of people got caught up in that who weren't violent. 
Let's uh, turn in the few moments we have remaining to lessons learned. You mentioned there are innocence projects in every state all over the country. Um, so there have been a lot of exonerations, and I know a couple of books that have looked at uh, what, was, what causes wrongful convictions in the first place, because mm-hmm. ideally we would change the system, tighten up the, the mistakes so that they don't happen in the future. What, what causes the mistakes? Well, there's a lot of things. Um, the leading one is misidentification. Eyewitness testimony. Yeah. And the reason is, and you know, I've given a lot of thought to this over the years, reading tons of transcripts. It's just, it's, first of all, it's very powerful evidence. When somebody walks in a court and says, I'm 100% sure that's the person who committed the crime, I was there. When juries hear that, they'll convict on that. And there's massive social science data about the reliability of eyewitnesses. And among other things, the more certain someone is of, of an identification, the less accurate they tend to be. I mean, just not that's one things of the that you would never just yeah. you would never believe. It's counterintuitive. That's one of the craziest ones. Is yeah. is when you look at the ID, the person who says they're 100 percent sure is probably the person who's wrong, and the person who says I'm not sure but gives specifics about features. That's the good ID, and you know, it, there's all kinds of problems in Southern California, particularly we have with cross racial identifications. Mm-hmm. I mean, I, if I look at a case and there's a cross-racial identification, I'm already cynical about it because we're just terrible at IDing Well, people. and again, there are massive studies. I mean, over years, this isn't a quirky thing. That's, there's just no question, no question. Uh, about that. And, and yet there's no question the courts about- have been particularly reluctant to do much about eyewitness, even though it's pretty obviously not that reliable. Right. The New Jersey Supreme Court um, last year handed down a remarkable decision, which is literally a textbook on identifications and details all the problems with it, all the science behind it. It's really remarkable. Um, and, But it's a hard thing to get people to accept. It's a hard thing to get the courts to accept. Uh, you have to use expert witnesses in those cases. You know, in the exonerations we've had, where there's been misidentifications, we've had to bring experts in to testify to the frailties of the ID. And, you know, it's expensive. Judges aren't necessarily responsive to experts. Yeah. They think they, they know about identifications, and sometimes they really don't know the problems with it. So it's, it's, it's been the leading cause. So eyewitness identification is a big cause. You mentioned earlier in the discussion that um, a, a defense attorneys who didn't do their job, to put it And uh, mostly bluntly. it's failure to investigate. Yeah. And I'll tell you something that's, that struck me in the past decade is the overwhelming majority of our cases, almost all of them, are where private lawyers have represented the defendants, not public defenders. Uh, the public defenders, by and large, do a good job because they have investigators who work for them, they have brief banks, they have supervisors, and they have mandatory training. Um, there's some incredibly excellent private attorneys, but on a lot of private attorneys, there's not all those checks, and some of them are running a business, mm-hmm, and mm-hmm. they don't necessarily hire the investigators. Yeah. So we've had a problem more with the private bar than with public defenders. Um, another leading cause is snitches. And in a state like California that has such severe sentencing... To say a word about what, the, what that means. Well, it's just, you know, you have uh, what guys... What a snitch in this context means. Well, a snitch is, you know, someone in prison who has something hanging over them or out of custody who is going to come in and testify in order to help themselves out of the situation they're so in. So somebody who's been charged with something said, my cellmate confessed to the crime, now reduce my... Right. 
And the so, most extreme example we had of that in one of our cases was in the John Stoll case where he was convicted of tons of molestations against young boys. There was a snitch in that case who claimed that John confessed to him all these molestations in the jail cell in front of several other inmates, um, which is a very unrealistic proposition to start with that anyone's going to... I mean, John, in fact, pretended for years that he was in prison for on munitions charges. You wouldn't let anyone know you were in prison for molestation. Um, I tracked this guy down with our investigator in our office, uh, met him at a bar in Northern California. And after we talked for a while, he admitted that the, you know, he made a deal to get out from under one of his charges, that the police showed him the police reports. He memorized all the information and then went in and said that yeah. it was a confession to him. Wow. And it's hard to get jurors sometimes to see that. The, as I understand it, expert witness problems have also been a, a cause of uh, wrongful conviction. Yeah, and there's all levels of experts. You know, my, my favorite or least favorite is forensic odontology. Yeah. yeah. It's, it's sometimes um, bored dentists who watch a lot of CSI. Teeth marks. Teeth yeah. Marks. I mean, there's a lot of people who get convicted on bite mark evidence, and it's so inexact. And you get jurors treating it like DNA or fingerprinting, and it's literally the bruising left on a body after a bite. It's not even really the mark usually, it's the bruising that responded to that. Um, we've had several of these cases and it's, it's shocking to me that you can get convicted on that evidence. Well, there are uh, many uh, opportunities for error. Uh, Alex, we want the last question for you, which okay. is uh, one of the ways of improving things is to improve uh, what the attorneys involved in the criminal system do. Mm-hmm. Is this class helping you be a better attorney? Are you going into criminal law? I plan to, yes. And it's funny, I was actually talking with um, an attorney at the public defender's office um, at an event recently, and he said, well, it's you know, it's easy to help you know, innocent people. What about, you know, we have guilty people in our office as well. Um, but I told him that the biggest thing that I learned from the Innocence Project is um, learning from the IAC claims, the ineffective assistance of counsel claims. Um, I... If in my career my clients are convicted, which I'm sure they will be, I'm determined that it will not be because of my error, because I failed to um, go that extra mile for them. Um, it's it's my ultimate nightmare to have an innocent person convicted on my watch. So that's what I've learned. Good for you. I think uh, that I want to thank both of you for being on uh, our our program today. Thank you for the work you do. We're really grateful to Professor Justin Brooks, the director of the California Innocence Project, and Alex McDonald, a student at California Western School of Law. Uh, We're grateful for uh, your insights into the criminal justice system. We also want to thank our producers, Hank Crook, Grace Garner, Ben Pesner, and Katrina Julian. We invite you to subscribe to our podcast by visiting lawreview.podbean.com or going to iTunes. If you have a topic you would like us to consider on Law Review, you may leave a message for us on the Podbean site. Until next time, this is Steve Smith, and the Law Review stands adjourned.